this contract mean for the Toronto Maple Leafs? Of course, he's the dominant center in the league, uh, the, the face of the franchise. Was this a good deal? Because some people are saying that, you know, it's a team-friendly contract, and some people are like, Austin should have got more money. Well, Dom just wrote an article about this today, so I feel like he's the perfect one to, to start. Uh, yeah, I wrote something today that touched on this, and I don't think that Austin's deal was particularly team-friendly. Obviously, it was a bit above market value relative to what other players have got in the past, especially if you look at Connor McDavid's deal. Austin's probably not a million dollars worse than Connor, and he also signed for only five years instead of eight years. But what I wrote today was that I don't think players of that ilk go far enough in getting their contracts. And if you look at the NBA, you see stars at the top of the food chain. They get one or two year deals and they maximize salary cap growth and they get as much money as they can. And as much as it looks like Austin took an above market value deal, considering his talent level, I feel like he could have went farther and got more money and by year four or five I think it'll be probably a fine contract. But you mentioned the NBA. I mean the difference is there's what 12 players on a team. The broadcasting deals are a little bit more lucrative so isn't that apples to oranges? Another factor is the fact that in the NBA you can play like 40 minutes out of 48. You can play most of the game. Whereas the NHL, the best player in the world, plays what, like 22 minutes a night, give or take, and McDavid. So mm -hmm. it's a factor you have to take into account. But I agree with Dom when it comes to the fact that I feel like star players for a long time have been underpaid relative to what they're actually worth. We've been convinced that the best player on the team needs to take a, a team-friendly deal so that you can afford to sign Milan Lucic and Chris Russell to contracts. And <laughs> Shots no, fired. That's what I mean. You don't, or, or so that you can sign Patrick Marlowe and Nikita Zaitsev to $10 million. Like, that's hey, the fact. Marlo's a good pro. It's the, it's the, <laughs> the middle class has been overpaid for a long time, and I think the upper class, the real true superstars, have been underpaid for a long time. So if we're comparing Austin Matthews to other superstars who have signed recently, I do think it's an above-market contract, especially considering it took five years. If he'd taken eight years at 11.6 or even 12 million, I don't think many Leafs fans would have much of a problem with it, because that would be a lower cap at percentage than McDavid. But because he took five years, usually when you're taking five years, it's assumed, okay, because we're eating less UFA years, you're going to be making less money, but he didn't seem to be getting much of a discount on his contract. Now, in, in the one sense, the objective analyst to me says, yes, this is good. Star players deserve more money. The Leafs fan to me looks at it and says, ooh, you paid basically market value for Nylander, you paid maybe even slightly above market value for Matthews. Is Braden Point going to sign for the same money? Is Miko Rantanen going to sign for the same money? Is Patrick Lonnie going to sign for the same money? It's yet to be seen, but I'm curious to see how this looks a few months from now after those RFAs sign, because if they follow suit and take advantage of the leverage that they actually do have, and I feel like for a long time we've been pretending that RFAs and star players' position don't have any leverage, you absolutely have leverage if you're a superstar player. Go to July 1st, tell someone you're willing to sign an offer sheet for a max deal. If you're Zach Eichel or Austin Matthews, someone will sign you to it. But... I mean, we've been pretending for a long time that in hockey culture that, you know, oh, you got to stay loyal, you got to sign here for eight years, you know, take a million off your cap so that we can build a winner. And then they use that extra cap space to sign bad contracts to middling players in UFA. So personally, I think it's a good contract for Austin Matthews, not the greatest deal in the world for the Leafs, but moving forward, it might set the market for other star players, which in the long run, I think would be good for the league. Which could also change the complexion of the Leafs roster because you forgot to mention Mitch Marner, or did you, right? I mean, like... <laughs> you hear his agent's comments recently? <laughs> but he doesn't want any distractions, so... 
Yeah. And then the Leafs also have like Kapanen, Janssen. There's just so many players that really need to get that sorted out. But you guys were also working on some articles recently just in terms of how teams around the NHL have changed since January. So where teams are trending upwards, downwards, who are you guys keeping your eyes on right now? Uh, I feel like uh, Winnipeg is just getting healthy now, and they are obviously the comparable to the Leafs in the West. And I know a lot of national media likes Winnipeg more than Toronto because I think they have a bit more balance. But now that the Leafs added Jake Muzzin, how do you feel? Do you think they're... We're buzzing for Muzzin, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, if any, it's funny. Over the last few games, like Muzzin's been like, oh, superstar defenseman, big slap shot, big hitter. But... I, I think that his true value is his ability to separate players from the puck and move the puck up the ice with possession. Like, when he's on the ice, his teams dominate shots, they dominate chances, and the fact that you can play him alongside Morgan Riley, now you have Hainsey on a third pairing with Dermott, all of a sudden you have three good defense pairings. It's not usual for the Leafs to have that. We haven't seen that for a long time. And you asked about, like, trends over the last few months. If you look at the Leafs' metrics since about December 1st, like when Austin Matthews and William Nylander came back, they've been one of the best teams in the league when it comes to controlling shots, controlling chances. Chances. Even tr- controlling goals at 5-on-5, five five, the reason they haven't been winning as many games is because their shooting percentage on the power play is pretty low. In the long run, I think that's going to work itself out because you look at the talent on the Leafs' power play. They have Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, John Tavares, Nazem Kadri, a second unit with William Nylander and Jake Gardner. I feel like the goals are going to come. So, honestly, if we're just talking about flat-out performance at the ice on, at 5-on-5... Five I think the Leafs have to be feeling really good, especially after this Jake Muzzin trade, because now all of a sudden they're deep three lines when it comes to their forwards. They have three defense pairs that they can trust out there in different situations. And if Frederick Anderson stays healthy, I think they're arguably the second best team in the NHL behind Tampa. So they're better than the Jets, which was my original question. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) They're better than the Jets, in my opinion. Okay, uh, yeah, I feel like that's an uncommon opinion in Mm -hmm. the national scape. Now there's no... I agree with you. I think it's Tampa, then Toronto. Um, I'm not as enamored by the Jets because I feel like their underlying metrics for a while have been trending down, but they've also been dealing with injuries to Nikolai Ehlers, Dustin Bufflin, Patrick Laine disappeared for two months. So um, I, I, I don't see why other people are saying Winnipeg is the team to beat. Maybe it's just because they're out west and Toronto is in Tampa's division, but for me... I keep getting flack for having the Leafs as the second best team, but I just don't see it any other way. So you think that the Leafs will get past Tampa if it did, in fact, come down to that? Mm, I think they are. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's close. I mean, I think think Tampa Bay is the better team, and they'll probably have home ice advantage, but anything can happen in a seven-game series. Mm -hmm. I'd say maybe, I don't know, 60%, 40%. Is that what your model might say? Yeah, it's probably around there. I think it might be a little closer since they added Muzzin, but I do think that everyone seems to be afraid of the Boston. Boston Bruins, and I am not as much this year. Well, they've been injured. I think that's mm-hmm. part of it, too, right? There's been so much inconsistency on their blue line with McAvoy, Chara, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, and they're healthy now and playing better, but I just I don't think they're as scary as they have been in years past, especially because they are very much a one-line team, and the second, third, and fourth line just aren't getting it done as much over the entire season. Really, I think without... Bergeron, Marchand, and Pasternak on the ice, they're only shooting like 5% at 5 on 5. Is which that is, sustainable, to be fair? I mean, probably not, but I, when you have a low-talent group behind uh, your top line, I don't, think it's, I don't think it's unfair to question whether they have the depth to get past a team like 
Toronto or Tampa. One thing I'd be curious about is um, like tactics in the playoffs because I felt like last year in the playoffs Toronto got really outcoached because if you look at the forecheck that Boston put in, they made sure that the Leafs were forced to move the puck over to the right-handed defenseman. We all know the Leafs' blue line. Last year in the playoffs, it was Morgan Riley, Jake Gardner, Travis Dermott, who are all great puck movers. Ron Hainsey, Nikita Zaitsev, Roman Polak, not so much. So if you can force them to be the ones getting the puck out of the zone, all of a sudden you're not going to get as many clean exits. The other team's going to hem you in the offensive zone more often. It's a, a bad thing. With the Muzzin trade, that might help. It'll be interesting to see if Riley plays on the right side or if Muzzin's playing on the right side. But I'd be curious to see if tactics plays into it because Bruce Cassidy, I was really impressed with what he did last year in the playoffs against Toronto. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, even despite those that defensive upgrade of Jake Muzzin, if you look at the forwards that Boston have, they have Bergeron, who obviously ate Matthews' lunch last year. Now the Leafs have Tavares and Matthews on two different lines. They have Kadri on a third line. Boston just does not have a second or third line that can match up well against that, and it'll be a lot easier now for the Leafs defensemen to get the puck up to those guys because they have Muzzin, and I just... I know that a lot of people are worried about Boston. I just don't see it this year. I like that optimism. (laughs) Not biased, though. Okay, do you guys want me to open up to you? You got some questions out there? Yes. Oh, hey, friends. One sec. I'm just going to leave you guys up there for a second. (laughs) (laughs) What does that do? Did I ask you the question, maybe? How's it going, guys? <clears throat> With the, the big crop of RFAs coming up uh, over the next year, there's bound to be one domino to fall first. What do you think of the fact that uh, Matthew's signing when he did with three weeks left of the deadline? What, what does the timing of that all mean for the Leafs? And if they're done dealing over the next three weeks between now and the deadline, did they goof up? Should they have waited for someone else to sign first? And uh, how do you think that would have impacted in the long term? Uh, I think they did the right thing because I know they want to know how much space they have and how much space they need to make an addition. Uh, As we saw with Muzzin, they added someone with term and they're not afraid of doing that and getting the certainty of Matthew's deal helps them know what they can and can't add, especially when it comes to next year. And yeah, I think that's all I got. Um, Personally, I wouldn't be shocked if they made a move before the deadline. I think personally, looking at their roster, again, right D, I think, is is the place that you would want to upgrade. I don't think Nikita Zaitsev is the ideal second-pairing defenseman on a cup contender. So if you could move him before the deadline, I know that we all laugh and say, oh, how are you going to trade Nikita Zaitsev? You'd have to trade him at negative value. Would anyone be willing to take him for a uh, seventh-round pick? I think that he does have value around the league. I think that 200 hockey men, like the NHL GMs around the league, I think someone would be willing to bite on a trade for him. And if you could bring in, whether it's a a Nick Jensen or a Radko Gudis to play alongside Gardner in your second pairing, all of a sudden, your top four looks really good. You went from a team where defense was a, a weakness to now all of a sudden defense would become a strength. Still being able to run Travis Dermott on the third pairing to dominate the opposition. Personally, I think that's where they would make their move if they did make one. I know people have been talking about Michael Furland or Wayne Simmons, but personally, I don't think that would be ideal. I know that someone like Mike Babcock might really want a heavy forward like that, but if you look at the Leafs' top nine right now, I mean, Matthews, Tavares, Kadri down the middle, that's not changing. 
Marner, Nylander, Kapanen. That's not changing. Now you go to left wing. You got Andreas Janssen, Zach Hyman, Patrick Marlowe. Are any of those guys going to play on the fourth line? Well, Andreas Janssen might, apparently, because he's been in there for the last couple games. But I think he's their best left winger. So uh, in, in the playoffs, I think that that's a really solid top nine, and you're happy with it. I don't think you want to pay any money at the deadline to upgrade on the fourth line. I feel like that's a waste of a second-round pick to upgrade at fourth line center again. I don't want them to do that again for a third year. I feel like that wouldn't be ideal. Is it because you love Frederick Gauthier? Yes. <laughs> no, it's not. But um, it's... It's just the fact that those guys are going to get, what, like five or six minutes a night in the playoffs? Like, you should be rolling Matthews and Tavares 20-plus minutes in the playoffs. You should be rolling Kadri, like, 17 minutes in the playoffs. If Par Lindholm or Frederick Gauthier plays more than six minutes in a playoff game that doesn't go into overtime, I think that's going to be an issue. And I could see it happening, but that's another conversation for another day. absolutely <laughs> see it happening. Oh, my God. When Par Lindholm plays more minutes than Kasper Kapanen. We're going to have games with Matthews playing, like, 17 min- minutes or Tavera's in that range. We'll have Hainsey still leading the Leafs in five-on-five ice time. Connor just, Brown getting more minutes than, like, Nylander. Yeah, it's just, it's just something you got to deal with at this point. Yeah, but, okay, to answer your question, long story short, I think that... <laughs> I do think defense might be a place they'll look to upgrade at the deadline, but it comes down to whether or not they can move out Zaitsev. But I wouldn't be shocked if, let's say, they trade for a Radko Gudas. You could send Ron Hainsey the other way to get the, the money to work this year, and then in the offseason, you find a way to offload Zaitsev, uh, trade Connor Brown so that Trevor Moore can come in, maybe see if you can make Patrick Marlowe disappear. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, that's what it's going to come down to in the offseason. What's the love affair with Radko Gudis? He hits really hard, and he's actually good. That's like what it comes down to, basically. He just has a nice chorus, and Ian likes that. <laughs> okay, we got it's another question score. here. <laughs> It'll probably be similar. Hey, guys, this is Jeff. Um, I want to talk about the report card schedule a little bit. <laughs> Not actually, but um, it seems like if you break down the Leafs games into three broad categories, you have like games against Tampa and good opponents where they really rise to the occasion, like great games. You got games like against the Ducks where they just roll over a crappy opponent. And then you have games like Ottawa where they mail it in. Maybe they put it over time, whatever. And it's like like that game, it wasn't great, but they managed to win. I don't watch a lot of other teams that, enough to know, but are other teams doing the same thing? Or is this a Leaf-specific type of thing where they get overconfident and it either works and they blow the team out or they just end up in these weird games like we have against Ottawa where you're like, what is this team? How is this team the same team that beat Tampa? I know Dom bets on a lot of hockey and like keeps track of like a lot of teams, like how they're doing like ups and downs throughout the season. So what have uh, you seen? It's really interesting because when the Leafs play like garbage against Ottawa, everyone's watching and they say something. But when Tampa Bay loses to Ottawa, no one really cares because that's just something that happens throughout the year. Even the best teams will have bad games and... I think it's just the Leafs are under such a microscope that those bad games get taken out of context. And I wouldn't be surprised if maybe the Leafs do take a few more games off. They do have a lot of young players on the team. They haven't like done this before, and they aren't like a Tampa Bay yet where they need to know what it takes to win. But at the same time, it's a game in January against the Senators. I, If I was playing, I wouldn't give a shit either. <laughs> Also, the way that the report card schedule works is Dom looks at the games that he doesn't want to do, and he gives them to me. That is, <laughs> that is absolutely correct. So, so 
So Saturday nights, it's like, that's yours, Ian. And I'm like, thanks, Dom. And <laughs> the Leafs show up on Saturdays. I actually have an article coming out on Saturday where I was diving into it because I'm like, how is this possible? How all of Dom's games are trash and all of mine's are, all of mine's, all of mine are good. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, how is this possible? So I was looking. I'm like, okay, maybe when they face good teams, they do all right. When they face bad teams, maybe they don't try as hard. And I'm like, man, it doesn't really show up in the numbers. They're dominating bad teams and shots and chances against good teams. They're more break even. I started looking at a bunch of different things. What I found is that on Saturdays, they perform well. Like if you look at shots and chances, they do way better on Saturday than they do on like Mondays or Tuesdays or Thursday, Friday. And part of me wonders, I'm like, does that have something to do with maybe like, are they playing more games at home? Are are they playing like worse teams? I looked at it. It's not that big of a difference. So I think it might come down to the fact that Hockey Night in Canada, Saturday night, the, the bright lights, you know all of a sudden it's a big game, maybe you try a bit harder. And on a Tuesday evening against Ottawa, maybe you don't give a shit. That might come down to it a little bit. But I, I hope you know this is like an analytics cardinal sin to say that a team plays well on a certain day. Like, are you it's like if that? you bet on Wednesdays on a certain team, yeah. like uh, after 3 p.m. Yeah, Leafs are playing on Saturday. They might win this one. It's been a consistent trend over the last three years, though. Has it? Yep. Well, I guess we'll see. I'll see. <laughs> <laughs> is that an analytics thing? Or? It's still a small sample size. I hope it you is. are aware of that. In the grand scheme of things. Okay, we have another question back here. <laughs> hey, guys. First time, long time. <laughs> I, I, uh, there's been a lot of talk about offer sheets, obviously, um, and different contracts that would be available. So if somebody tomorrow, let's say Lou Amorello, offer sheeted Marner for the Matthews contract, would you match it? Ian? So he can't technically offer sheet him until July 1st, Thanks, right? Ian. Yeah, so. <laughs> Thank you for semantics. Okay. In a perfect hypothetical, I'm playing NHL 19 world, I wouldn't match it, and I'd sign Panarin or Stone to that money. But that's not going to happen. Like, realistically, Stone and Panarin are going to sign right away on July 1st, and no one's going to send an offer sheet until a few weeks into July after everyone's already made their moves, and all of a sudden you're capped out. So that's not going to happen realistically. I've, of, I've seen a bunch of people on Twitter recommend it, and I love the idea behind it. I love the creativity behind it. Like, get the four first-round picks and use that same money on a similar player who's going to provide similar value. It's interesting to think about, but realistically, it's just not going to be possible because superstar free agents sign on the first day or two of free agency, and when we look at when offer sheets happen, they tend to happen much later in the summer or earlier in the fall, so I can't see it happening realistically, and and unless it's a completely absurd offer sheet, like $15 or $16 million, I think you have to match it if you're the least because four first-round picks aren't worth a superstar talent like Mitch Marner, one of the top, what would you say, top... 30 players in the NHL? Is that far? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think what Ian is ignoring is it really matters what team is signing Mitch Marner this offer sheet. If it's a good team and your expected pick range is in the 20s, then no, I wouldn't match it because you're not finding someone like Marner in that range. But, but if it's if, Arizona. But if it's like Arizona or like a, another crappy team that thinks Mitch Marner is going to save them. I think the value of those four first-round picks, if they're high picks, might surpass what Marner can do because it replenishes the Leafs' pipeline. It might extend their window, and it's not like they don't still have elite players. Like It might lessen their talent level right now, but in the long run, it could be beneficial. So that that's what I would do. It just really depends on whether it's a team like Ottawa doing it or if it's a team like Boston doing it. But you have a window right now, like, in the next, let's say, three years, because um, Riley and Kadri's contracts are up in 2022. Yeah. So 
once those guys are no longer making four and a half million for Kadri or five million for Riley, all of a sudden it's going to be really hard to keep all the talent around together. And if you do, it's going to come at the expense of having a competent second pairing or a competent third line and fourth line. So I feel like the Leafs, we haven't realized yet, but they're in a real window right now where this year and the next three years, they might be their best chances to win the Stanley Cup. So are you really going to be comfortable giving up a star player like Marner who's going to hurt your chances of winning a Stanley Cup in those years for guys who are going to help you win a cup in the next five to ten years? It's like the present value versus future value argument. I'm not sure if it would be worth it unless it's like a complete like bottom dweller like Arizona or who, who comes in last place if Ottawa does yeah. it. This, yeah. Well, I, I think that's why you got to calculate the odds of what's going to happen and where that pick is going to be because if you can expect maybe a top five or top ten pick, then those guys will be on ELCs instead of Marner's 11.6 million now, and those guys can be support players for a still solid core of Matthews, Tavares, Nylander, Kadri, Riley. And that's what makes yeah. Sandine and Lilligren so valuable, and that's why they didn't want to give them up in the trade, exactly. because in a year or two, you're going to need guys providing value on an entry-level contract. You're playing Matthews, 11.6. You're paying Tavares, 11 million. You're paying Nylander, 7. You can't keep everyone and have guys at the bottom of your roster making $2.5 million on your third pairing. You need guys who can come in on an entry-level deal. You need guys like Trevor Moore or Callie Rosen, who are making 750000 800000 playing at an NHL level. So... I definitely understand the argument, but I think realistically we're never going to see any of this happen, and Marner's going to sign for a contract that we probably don't love, but it's going to be fine, and the Leafs will find a way to make it work, and it'll be interesting to see where Rantanen and Point and Aho and all those guys sign in the next few years, because I do feel like the market's going up for star players, and like we've talked about, rightfully so. I think they've been underpaid for a long time, and hopefully we see less of the Okposo, Lucic, Andrew Ladd deals, and more of these Austin Matthews type contracts, because I think that reflects like the reality in the market. Yeah. Okay, another question in the back here. Your uh, comments, Ian, transitioned well to my question, which is about kind of this current crop of RFAs this summer. Um, do you think any of them uh, will match or come close to Austin Matthews, maybe not term, but like annual cap hit? Do you think any of the this year's RFAs um, are going to get close to that 11-something million dollars a year in salary? I think Rantanen's got a good case. I mean... I think Point has a much better case because Rantanen's a winger and Point will be the only center. But I, honestly, I don't think any of those players are in Matthews' tier in terms of where he stands in the rest of the league. Like, he's a top 10 player right now, and Point and Rantanen are elite players, and I just, I just don't think they're able to command what he has. I think with Point, it's going to be tough because you look at Tampa's situation and he, Steve Eiserman just seems to mind trick people into taking 80% of He's what they're actually He's not there anymore. Worth. So whoever his replacement is, I don't know if he passed down the power, but I mean, you look at Hedman's contract, you look at Stamkos' contract, even Kucherov's contract, they're making less than they should be making based on their actual talent, but... I mean, with Braden Point, is he going to actually put his foot down and say, I'm worth $10.5 million, I'm worth $11 million, I'm a star center in my prime, give me that money? I'd love to see him do it. I think more star players should do it. Um, again, we'll, we'll see what happens. With, with Tampa Bay, we don't talk about it, but the state tax situation is another factor because the real dollars that they bring in because of the state tax situation, you'll make more in Tampa Bay on a $9.5 million contract than you would in Toronto on like an $11 million contract. So it's just it's frustrating. It's not really fair, but it's, it's, it's the way that it works. I feel like you should have a podcast or something. <laughs> huh? Yeah. 
<laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, guys, that's the end of this. Can you believe how quickly that went by? Not, not quick enough for Dom. <laughs> <laughs> Can we give it up for Ian and Dom, please? Woo!